It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, Saturday Night Live again. It's 110th season over the weekend. And open with a skit with a new cast member playing Joe Biden. And I don't know, he had some of the mannerisms down, but I thought it didn't quite work. Or maybe it just, this just wasn't, the whole skit wasn't that funny. The writing wasn't that good. Except for uh, Kristen Cinema, who got the treatment. Uh, and I have a lot more to say about her on this podcast because she has become like public enemy number one for the air quote liberal media. By the way, I saw a news item this morning saying that the premiere for the new season of SNL only had three and a half million viewers, the same as the episodes at the end of the last season. Uh, and by contrast, uh, a year ago when it was Chris Rock hosting, seven and a half million. Okay, Chris Rock's great, but what was going on in 2020? presidential campaign, pandemic, you know, all kinds of Trump stuff. Uh, not really a fair comparison. Big dramatic day for baseball yesterday. I read uh, one of the pieces this morning. There were about 16 different combinations for what could happen in the American League, what we used to call a pennant race. And so now it turns out the Yankees, the Red Sox, Toronto, and Seattle uh, there'll be two wild card games tomorrow to determine who gets into the playoffs as the wild card. Uh, and, you know, when you have a day with that many combinations where your team has to play well, but you're kind of watching the scoreboard and it depends on somebody else losing, I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, obviously, two of those teams are not going to make it. But one game playoff after 162 games, uh, that's pretty dramatic stuff. And the other big sports news, of course, Tom Brady going back to Foxborough, beating his old team. The New England Patriots driving his team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, down the field 45 yards to set up the winning field goal and then having kind of an awkward, quick hug with uh, Bill Belichick, who he played for for so many seasons. As, as It was a sloppy, rain-filled game. But as Brady's team was doing better, he got booed at uh, the stadium in New England. I mean, I don't know. I, you know. I guess now he's the enemy, he's the opposition. A lot of fans are probably pissed off that he left. But, you know, if you gave this organization so many great seasons, what, I think five Super Bowls, constantly in the playoffs, and then, you know, late in your career, you choose to go elsewhere, and you come back and try to win for your team, I don't know, look, fans can boo if they want, but it felt, uh, you know, it's personal, it's sports, you're a hero one day, you're a goat the next, and by goat, I don't mean greatest of all time, I mean goat, (laughs) but he was not the goat, he won the game. Uh, morning TV today. Interesting. Uh, Stephanie Grisham, the former White House press secretary, with her first interview on Good Morning America. Uh, I am reading her book, and I do have to say, in addition to all the things that she says about Donald Trump and Melania Trump, and, you know, I think there are very serious questions which got asked on GMA about why did you turn on the people who you would work for. Um, she's pretty tough on herself, uh, both in terms of her personal life And in terms of, um, she's actually said on the air this morning, you know, the left doesn't like me, the the right doesn't like me, uh, I don't come off well in this book. She's not painting herself as a heroine. She also said she thought Donald Trump is unfit for office. She doesn't want him to run again. She says if he wins another term, he'll be out for revenge. Okay, but you're the person who came and spoke for him uh, and stayed in the Trump administration for four years, resigning only right after the January 6th, Capital riot. So, you know, she's out there with the book. 
Uh, I'll have more to say when I've read more of the book, and I hope to have a chance to talk to her. And Carlos Watson, you probably heard, I did a little bit of this uh, media buzz yesterday. I hope you had a chance to see the show. Uh, we had Julie Banderas um, on fire over Katie Kirk's scathing memoir, uh, saying she used to look up to Katie and just thinks now this is uh, an awful thing for her to do to other women. Um, I'm sure that got a lot of clicks, judging from the reaction online. But anyway, Carlos Watson is was the chairman of Ozzy Media, which said Friday it's shutting down four days after a New York Times expose about it. I mean, this is so wild. More stuff is coming out about its traffic claims and its claims of being on uh, having its content carried on other networks. It just looks like a house of cards that collapsed. Uh, and... Watson is a former MSNBC anchor who, you know, he got he hired Caddy Kay, and it was supposed to be sort of the cool, hot thing. And in this Today Show interview, he said, well, actually, we're, we're going to come back. We're not going to shut down. So the whole thing is just muddled because the chairman or the CEO has already resigned. So he didn't even give us time to miss him. On Friday, he's done. On Monday, he's mounting a comeback. Turns out he's hired a new PR guy, and this is the blitz to try to repair the damage. And Craig Melvin was pressing him on claiming that Sharon Osbourne, wife of Ozzy, uh, was an investor in Ozzy Media, and that's she says, no way. He said, well, she sued us because we used Ozzy Fest, and they already had the Oz Fest, obviously named after her rock star husband, um, and as part of the settlement, we gave her some stock in the company. So I consider that an investor. Well, that's not the way most people would look at it. An investor is somebody who chooses as a vote of confidence to, uh, confidence to invest in your company. So we'll see how that plays out. But it, it was a grand total of four days from what the New York Times revealed about his co-founder, Watson's co-founder, impersonating a YouTube executive on a conference call with Goldman Sachs Investment Bank. You can't do that to say how great the videos were doing on YouTube, and it wasn't a YouTube guy, it was his partner, his founding partner. Wow. All right, let's start with number one. I want to start with Facebook. I want to start with the 60 Minutes broadcast last night. Francis Haugen is the Facebook whistleblower, former employee who came out for the first time, made a pretty powerful performance in my view. Now, I have to say, just in terms of the sheer PR rollout aspect of this, she copied tens of thousands of pages of internal Facebook documents, gave them to the Wall Street Journal, which had a blockbuster series of articles, a whole week-long worth of stuff, and every day with new revelations about Instagram, about special treatment for VIPs and politicians and journalists, uh, about um, you know changing the algorithm to allow for more anger and hateful content. Then she goes on 60 Minutes last night, and I think she's going to testify on Capitol Hill tomorrow. So this is quite the rollout. And let me read you some of what she said. I mean, it's not that she's plowing new ground here, and of course she already gave out some of her evidence, but she put it in a way I think that only an insider could. She says, the thing I saw at Facebook over and over again were conflicts of interest between what was good for the public and what was good for Facebook. Facebook over and over again chose to optimize its own interests like making more money. Well, most companies choose to make more money, but it's the power and the reach of Facebook that makes this so troubling. Why did you quit? Well, I knew what my future looked like if I stayed inside of Facebook. Um, critics there, she says, are ground up. Um, she talked about one study that said, remember, this is Facebook's own research, quote, we estimate that we may action as little as 3 to 5% of hate 
at about six-tenths of 1% of VNI. VNI is violence and incitement, despite being the best in the world. So Facebook knows all this stuff. Um, CBS's Scott Pelley said, to quote from another document, we have evidence from a variety of sources that hate speech, divisive political speech, or misinformation on Facebook are affecting societies around the world. Francis Haugen. When we live in an information environment that is full of angry, hateful, polarizing content, it erodes our civic trust, it erodes our faith in each other, it erodes our ability to want to care for each other. The version of Facebook that exists today is tearing our societies apart and causing ethnic violence around the world, she says. Now look, all of this can't be laid at the feet of Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Powerful as Facebook is, um, you have to look at the fact that these are longer-term trends. Facebook didn't single-handedly create the toxic politics that we all live with today. Uh, there's also the rest of the media. There's cable news and on and on, and then politicians themselves. Um, let me read a little bit more here from this 60-minute sit-down. Uh, she was recruited by Facebook in 2019. She took a job to work against misinformation. She said she lost a friend to online conspiracy theories. Um, and then, after the 2020 election, the brass told her, we're dissolving the civic integrity unit that she worked at. Uh, it was basically, this is her take, oh good, we made it through the election. There weren't riots. We can get rid of civic integrity now. Fast forward a couple months, we got the insurrection. They got rid of civic integrity. It was that moment where I was like, I don't trust that they're willing to actually invest what needs to be invested to keep Facebook from being dangerous. So this woman knows how to sort of hit all the right buzzwords. Um, she says it's all, you know, what Facebook did was it changed the algorithm. And it was supposedly for a noble purpose. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg bragged about this. Uh, less just feeding you, let's just say, straight news stories and more about engagement things that your family and friends and others are interested in so that you would respond to them. You get more comments going, you get more engagement going. Well, that happens to be good for Facebook because the more you engage, the more time you spend, the more that Facebook can charge advertisers. Um, uh, she goes on to say what's super tragic. It's a technical term, super tragic. Uh, Facebook's own research says that women, this has to do with Instagram, uh, as they consume uh, that social media site, this eating disorder content, they get more and more depressed. And that actually makes them use the app more. And so they end up in this feedback cycle where they hate their bodies more and more. Facebook's own research said it is not just that Instagram is dangerous for teenagers, that it harms teenagers. It is distinctly worse than other forms of social media. She goes on to say she has empathy for Mark Zuckerberg. He never set out to make this a hateful platform, and I totally believe that. But he's allowed choices to be made where the side effects are that hateful polarizing content gets more distribution and more reach. Facebook would not give 60 Minutes an interview in a statement. said every day our teams have to balance protecting the right of billions of people to express themselves openly with the need to keep our platform safe and a positive place. We continue to make improvements and blah, blah, blah. Well, they're failing at it. They know they're failing at it because it's their own internal research. This is not, you know, some ivory tower professor coming up with this. A little sidebar here. Tech columnist Kevin Roos, writing in the New York Times, uh, kind of goes against the narrative that Facebook is all-powerful, you know, it's a nation-state to itself, uh, as somebody at The Atlantic put it a few days ago. I talked about that on the podcast. He says, if these leaked documents prove anything, it's how un-Godzilla-like Facebook is. 
Internally, the company worries that it's losing power and influence, not gaining it. Its own research shows many of its products aren't thriving. Instead, it's going to increasingly extreme lengths to improve its toxic image and to stop users from abandoning its apps in favor of competitors. So Ruse asked this question, would a confident, thriving social media app need to, quote, leverage play dates? This has to do with Facebook targeting 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, uh, or concoct a larger, elaborate growth strategies aimed at 10-year-olds. The truth is, he writes, Facebook's thirst for young users is less about dominating a new market and more about staving off irrelevance. Facebook use among teenagers has been declining for years. They consider it like an old person's medium. Uh, researchers predict that daily use would decline 45% by 2023. Instagram is losing market share to TikTok, which and actually is increasingly imitating TikTok. So it may be that desperation is driving Facebook to do some of these things. All right, story number two. You actually instinctively know this if you listen to the podcast because every day or virtually every day, I read the numbers about how many new cases, how many de new deaths on average. And so as it went up from 10,000 a month in June to 50,000 to 100,000 to the highest average daily new cases I saw was 166,000. And the average number of deaths soared over 2,000 a day. Uh, I shared that with you and talked about how despite, you know, how the vaccination program was stalled, and this was deeply concerning. But I've also been talking in recent days about how the number seems to have peaked and is coming down. And that is the news story today. Average number of new daily cases in the U.S., 106,000. Average number of daily deaths, 1,878, which is still shockingly high but at least it's coming back under 2,000. Uh, New York Times analysis says COVID-19 is in retreat, that just since September 1st, the average number of daily cases in the United States has fallen 35%. So that's roughly the numbers I've been sharing with you. So that's a good thing, but then you get the question is, why? Is this temporary? Is this a blip? Will there be another surge? So the author of this piece says there's, uh, COVID tends to run on a kind of a two-month cycle. That it's been about two months uh, since the Delta variant had its surge, and there have been other surges. And then why does it only last two months? Well, nobody really knows. It's not about winter or spring or summer because it happens in different seasons. Uh, it might be about social distancing, but he seems to think that's a minor factor. In other words, people see the death rate go up, the hospitalization rate go up, the number of new cases go up, and they change their behavior. Suddenly, they are wearing masks. Suddenly, they want to get the vaccine. And that would be great. And here's a number that I'm surprised more of this hasn't been made. So remember when vaccines first started to become available and Anthony Fauci and others would say, if we could just reach herd immunity, if we could get to 70 or 75 or even 80% of the population getting these shots, we will have beaten this thing. Well, buried in this piece, and I'm surprised this hasn't been a bigger story that's been so incremental, the number of Americans over the age of 12, and that's the only way you can measure it because that's who's eligible, who have gotten at least one dose of the coronavirus vaccine, 76%. So what's come, I mean, I know that's just one dose and for Pfizer and Moderna, you need two doses, but that's a pretty encouraging number. And I think it's gone up so by such minute amounts that we kind of lost sight of that. On the other hand, is that a factor in the, the surge now coming down? Or was that an exaggeration? Does herd immunity even exist? I just think that's an amazing number. Um, a couple other stats here, if I'm not burying you with numbers. 
not only the number of COVID illnesses declined, the number of Americans hospitalized with COVID has fallen about 25% since September 1st. So, you know, what happens is these are lagging indicators. The number of new cases goes down, then fewer people are dying, fewer people are getting seriously ill, fewer people are going to the hospital. And obviously, this number includes some number of people who are already vaccinated who get the virus, Brett Kavanaugh, for example, and don't have serious symptoms and don't have to worry about dying and don't have to go to the hospital. And that's a good thing. It's not that the vaccine completely reduces to zero your chances of getting the virus. All right, moving right along now to number three. Um, So it was late Friday after I finished the podcast that Nancy Pelosi had to admit defeat and Joe Biden had to admit defeat. They could not get a vote on the bipartisan $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Couldn't do it. Uh, Remember, uh, Pelosi was going to have it be last Monday. Then she said, oh, just need a little more time, and we'll do it Thursday. Couldn't get it Thursday. Then it was going to be Friday. Then it would be like, well, it's only 2 o'clock on Thursday or Friday. And she couldn't put it up for a vote. The reason she couldn't put it up for a vote in the House is she didn't have the votes. Because there's a sizable block of progressives who's saying, we're not voting for this. Not because they don't want money for roads and bridges, but because they want this $3.5 trillion other bill. And let me just say here, that whole strategy of linking the two bills together, I think, has been disastrous. Uh, Joe Biden comes out when asked by reporters, uh, and he says... You know, it doesn't matter if it takes uh, six minutes, six uh, weeks, six hours, six weeks, we will get this done. Well, I don't know, maybe. Maybe the Democratic Party will have to actually face reality, have to actually realize that you can't shove down the throat of Congress numbers this large. Remember, it's not just the $3.5 trillion. And by the way, the whole way this thing has been sold, build back better, what does that even mean? They should have marketed this as, the Dems, um, it's to expand Medicare. It's to help health care. It's to help children, child tax credit. It's to battle climate change. Instead, you have this eyes glaze over, beltway argument. Well, if we get anything less than $3.5 trillion, it's a shocking defeat. Well, why? Because Bernie Sanders wanted $3.5 trillion? And there was this Washington Post headline that said, Biden White House faces grueling choices on cutting three net trillions. They're not going to get anything near that. But by the way, if you have to settle for, you know, Joe Manchin wants one and a half trillion. The Bernies and AOCs want three and a half trillion. So you compromise somewhere in between. But let's say they, they have to compromise much closer to Manchin's figure and Cinema's figure. Let's even say they have to compromise at one and a half trillion dollars. On what planet is $1.5 trillion plus $1.2 trillion for the bipartisan bill a defeat? Why are they, I mean, sure, because it's this, it's overreach. It's a wish list. It's Joe Biden, who ran as a moderate in the primaries, getting pulled to the left by the Bernie wing. And instead, they could have declared victory. They could have come up with a little higher figure than Joe Manchin wanted, passed it on reconciliation, and they could be doing an end zone dance. Instead, it looks like they failed. It looks like the party is completely and totally not unified. In fact, here's this Washington Post piece. Many liberals don't trust moderates. Key moderates no longer trust congressional leaders or the White House. And few in the House trust the Senate. As Democrats embarked this week on their latest effort to save the Biden agenda, they're dealing with more than policy differences. And remember, they have this razor-thin majority. They can't agree on what to do. A lot of recriminations was the House leader's decision, with Biden's backing, to pull the infrastructure bill 
after liberals threatened to sink it because they would not support it until the bill they favor is also ready for a vote. Well, it's not ready for a vote because they don't have the votes, and they certainly don't have the votes in the Senate. Here's uh, Pramila Jayapal, one of the leading uh, members of the left-wing caucus in the House, uh, talking about this figure that finally came out that Manchin favors, $1.5 trillion. That's not going to happen. That's too small, she says. She's the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So what's going to happen? Ultimately, they got to compromise or just they should just give up. They're going to lose the House. They're probably going to lose the House anyway. They might end up losing the Senate. Biden's economic agenda would be over. So if you know you have to compromise anyway, why are you dragging this out? Because the longer this goes on, so now Pelosi says end of October. Okay, what happens if we get there and they don't have the votes? Will it be the day before Christmas? It's just it's not just a question of the sausage making. It's a question of a party that is completely at odds with itself. And the trashing now. You know, uh, Kristen Sinema said it was inexcusable that they couldn't get a vote on the infrastructure bill that everybody actually agrees on but is being held hostage. And by the way, John Oliver went after her uh, on his show. Um, Saturday Night Live, I mentioned, went after Kristen Sinema. And uh, Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC says she won't come on any shows and explain herself. So the media doesn't like her. Uh, and I'm frustrated. You know, she should come out and explain her position more fully. You know, what does she stand for? What does she want? What would she be willing to settle for? Uh, Maureen Dowd column says she's known as the Greta Garbo of the Senate. Well, we'll see. Uh, a lot more to play out here. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Uh, number four, I talked about this uh, on the air on Media Buzz. I talked about this on this very podcast. Uh, two, three, four weeks ago, there's this flurry of stories. Donald Trump's about to announce his 2024 presidential campaign. Jason Miller says it's 99 or 100%. Um, Jim Jordan talked to him and he says, oh, you know, as soon as the Afghan thing dies down, he's going to announce. And I was always skeptical of that, and most of the media were skeptical of that. But Trump was talking about it. It wasn't made up. Well, now here's a story in the Washington Post saying that Trump was talking with advisors um, back at uh, late August, even early September. Um, they urged him to be patient, speaking on condition of anonymity. They said, if you announce, well, then you've got to change your fundraising because there's all these FEC rules coming to play. Also, you can't necessarily go on all these shows because if you're an announced candidate, it can trigger equal time rules. So why do it now, they said. And apparently they talked him into it. You know, whether it was a head fake by him in the beginning or not, doesn't really matter. So now uh, the Post piece says some of his advisors were concerned the Democrats might use his announcement to frame the midterms around his candidacy, that this would actually help the Democrats in 2022. I mean, they're going to frame the midterms around his candidacy, whether it's announced or not. They're going to frame the midterms around what he did for four years. I mean, they're going to run against Donald Trump for the next 50 years, I think. Uh, but some Republicans were concerned as now. So the arguments have won Trump over. Instead of an announcement, Trump has settled on a strategy of winks and nods. Uh, as some in his party worry, he is acting like a candidate, making clear he intends to be one without actually declaring. You no, know, he says things like, I can't tell you, but when you hear about it, you're going to be very happy. And uh, in private conversations, he just says, I'm running, according to two advisors, not named. Um, he has said publicly that if he runs, he will win. What else does a candidate say, especially if you're Donald Trump? He sa has said that he doesn't think a lot of the other potential Republican candidates, that would be A, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, 
B, his former VP Mike Pence, C, maybe Nikki Haley, that they'll run. But, Trump said, if DeSantis runs, I'll win. I'll beat him. And he probably would, which Governor DeSantis would have to take into account. Now, in the end, is it possible he'll run or he won't run? By the way, one of the things the advisors told Donald Trump is that if you're out there as a declared candidate for president and the Republicans don't do well in the midterms, don't take back the Senate, maybe don't even take back the House, then it's on you. You'll you'll get all the blame. Uh, So, in other words, cooler heads prevailed. Now, among some Republicans, according to Trump, uh, they still wish, you know, they like him or they like what he did for four years. They wish he wouldn't run. Um, He has been struggling to break 45% approval overall. Well, you know, it's obviously different when you're in the spotlight every day, which he isn't. Uh, His toxic brand says the Post continues to turn off voters in the suburbs. Um, And he's got the investigations. Remember the Manhattan DA investigation? We'll see where that goes. Trump organization. Nothing really happened other than his CFO getting charged. And the House committee investigation of the January 6th riot. So, yeah, he's got some baggage. But then you got to get to, let's say Trump runs and wins. If he runs, he wins the nomination. I mean, you know, unless he's got health problems or something, it's a slam dunk. Uh, who's he running against? Is he running against Biden, seeking a second term at the age of 82? Is he running against Kamala Harris? Is he running against some other Democrats? So it's way, way early to handicap this. All right, number five. Um, I try to sample a bunch of podcasts, and I was listening to the new Joe Scarborough uh, podcast, the guy from MSNBC, Morning Joe, who I've known for many years and have been to you many times. And the cover of the podcast has a picture of him with his guitar, so I thought maybe we're going to talk about music. But no, it's more of the politics. And I was really struck uh, by what Scarborough had to say. I've seen him talk about a little of this on the air when he brings up family members and friends he grew up with who are still very, very, very loyal to the former president of the United States. And of course, you know, Joe Scarborough, once friendly with Donald Trump, uh, has been on a rampage against him for years. And how frustrating it is, Scarborough says on the air, um, that he can't sort of get them to see what he sees as, you know, the dangers of Trump and Trumpism. But when he talked about it on the podcast, it was in much more personal terms. And he said that he, the people that he, know, that he grew up with in the church uh, or in the conservative movement or University of Alabama, that... He wants to remain friends with them, but they keep sending him stuff about how great Trump is or how horrible Biden is. And he says he has begged them, literally begged them, let's not talk about politics. Let's just talk about kids. Let's talk about football. Let's talk about anything else in politics. We just have to agree to disagree. And he says a couple of these people keep sending him all this pro-Trump, anti-Trump stuff. And so finally he, he wrote this long sort of Dear John letter. And he said, I've begged you not to send me this stuff. By the way, he says, did you email me when Donald Trump was uh, accusing me of murder, which Trump did, talking about the death 20 years ago of an intern in Scarborough's office, in which there's absolutely no evidence that Scarborough played any role whatsoever. Did you email me, he asked, when uh, Trump went after my wife, Mika Brzezinski, uh, over, you know, she has some work done on her face. And he finally said, and this is him podcasting, that he doesn't understand, given that they're friends of his and that he's been under attack by the former president, why 
They remain such fierce advocates of Donald Trump. And he just wants to salvage the friendships. He doesn't want to say, okay, I'm never going to talk to you again. I'm cutting you out, which is what a lot of people do. People who had friends, and maybe they're online friends and Facebook friends, maybe they're friends IRL in real life. But Trump, and, and, and by extension Biden, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, a conservative, a QAnon person, a liberal, um, politics has gotten so personal, so cultural, so much a part of our identity in this country in a way that never was true before. Most people, you know, didn't, their lives didn't revolve around politics. They revolved around all this other stuff, their jobs, their families, their friends. Politics was something they dipped in and out of. Well, that's, those days are long gone. Social media has played a role. Facebook, as we talked about earlier. And so this, to hear the sort of pain in Scarborough's voice as he says he's begging these people to just go back to what unites them, the bonds of growing up together, and not spending the rest of their lives arguing about Donald Trump. I just thought it was, it's, it, what's good about podcasts and what I enjoy about it, what I hope you enjoy about it, is that, you know, you don't have to hit a commercial break. You don't have to go to the panel. You just get to speak frankly about what's in your heart. People can agree. People can disagree. Hopefully they find you interesting, uh, entertaining, and sincere and authentic and well-versed enough to decide you're worth the time. Well, I devote a lot of time to preparing for this podcast because I think you're worth the time. And that, of course, leads me to say, hey, why don't you subscribe on Apple iTunes, on your Amazon device, on Google Podcasts. Hope you had a great weekend. Back here tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, in these ever-changing times, you can rely on Fox News for hourly updates for the very latest news and information on your time. Listen and download now at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.